You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a very supportive and lovely writing community. I usually co-host this podcast with Alison Tate, author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery, but I'm flying solo just for this episode, this in-between-isode, um, in-between our regular programming. This in-between-isode is one of our story sessions, and in these sessions, you'll hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, often read by the author themselves, and they give a little bit of an insight into their writing process. Listening to the first chapter lets you sample something new while you're on the bus or in the car or doing the laundry, which seems to be often where I listen to podcasts. We all love to discover new authors, but uh, sometimes it's not that easy to get down to the bookshop, so we're bringing the bookshop to you. This week, I've chosen Tipping by Anna George. This is a funny, relevant, and thought-provoking book. It's a bit of a departure from Anna's previous two novels, the stunning thrillers, What Came Before and The Lone Child. It has the same exciting pace, but this time Anna trains her focus on the domestic sphere. Here Anna looks at the challenges and hypocrisies faced by many modern women. This is from the blurb, so you get an idea of what the book is about. Liv Winsome Working mother of three sons, wife to the decent, if distracted, Duncan is overwhelmed and losing her hair. Her doctor has told her she needs to slow down, do less, focus on what's important. After Jai, one of her 14-year-old twins, is involved in a sexting scandal, Liv realises things need to change, and fast. Inspired by the pop psychology books she devours, she writes a nine-page list of everything she does to keep the family afloat, and she delegates. She lets her boys' conservative school know it has some work to do too. Partly, Liv suspects, because its leadership has a woman problem, or rather, a too-many-men problem. Jai's girlfriend, Grace is at the heart of the sexting scandal and her mum, Jess Charters, up in arms as well, goes to the media. The women's combined focus forces Carmichael Grammar to take action. To everyone's surprise and Liv's delight, things actually start to improve. Inspired by his wife's efforts, Duncan rethinks the way he lives and works too, despite the workaholic culture of his law firm and its scary managing partner, who's also Duncan's older brother. In unexpected ways, Liv and Duncan's marriage and family undergo their own transformations. Some new developments, though, aren't entirely welcome. Lighthearted and optimistic, Tipping is a novel for our times. It's a story of domestic activism, mum and dad activism, because real change is possible. Sometimes all it takes is a tweak and the will and a bit of fun. All right, so that was the blurb. And without any further ado, here is Anna George herself reading the first chapter of her latest novel, Tipping. Tipping, Chapter One. Liv. 45, married and healthy, Liv Winsome was increasingly dismayed by her lot. Life wasn't as she's imagined it 20 years, two degrees and three children ago. Only moments earlier, her husband of almost two decades had forgotten her. With a jaunty flick of his wrist, Duncan had clicked his keys at their car behind him. Sitting in the car, finishing a call, Liv had taken a second to understand and try the handle. Then she clambered across to the driver's side window and thumped. She'd called out. This can't be happening, she'd thought, pushing buttons. But it was. 
Duncan and Jay, one of her 14-year-old sons, were dashing towards the office of Carmichael Grammar without her. The morning was getting warmer and the car park full. Sunlight was pouring across the roof of the recently completed wellbeing centre. Other families had already arrived, presumably in their full contingent, to watch their beloveds play sport. Their cars, mostly SUVs, the odd sedan or station wagon, looked in reasonable condition. Probably nothing faulty about any of them, no dodgy latches or hidden defects. Newly bought, the Winsons' car was second-hand, but lux for them. Liv had spent the last few weeks of summer researching, avoiding suspect airbags and dud transmissions. Not one review had mentioned this. Pressed up against the glass, Liv searched beyond the car park to the school's immaculate sports grounds. Though her three sons attended Carmichael, she didn't recognise a single sweaty child. She tried Duncan's phone. She tried Jay's phone. But of course, it was still off, and she remembered in her handbag. She tried Duncan's again. Often when she rang, her husband's phone was on silent or in a distant pocket. She peered into the brightening sky. Usually she didn't mind Duncan's not answering, but this morning it was getting hot. Children were locked in cars, she thought. Not adults. Not wives. Duncan did have form, though. When the twins were babies, she and Duncan had gone on a much-needed short break interstate. Taking pity on them, a close friend had set them up with staff travel. Duncan and Liv were separated in the terminal as they waited on their seat allocations, and she and the twins had boarded the aeroplane without him. Liv was breastfeeding the boys then and in a constant state of non-stop exhaustion. With the baby at each breast, she sat at the rear of the plane near the toilets. Liv had fretted when she hadn't seen Duncan board. It was only as the flight attendants performed their final checks that one of them whispered, Are you Liv? Yes, she smiled above the slurping babies. Duncan wants you to know he got a seat. Thank you. Her relief was instant. Up the front. Oh. Liv craned her neck to look far down the aisle. Polite, with a ready grin, Duncan was the sort of man other men liked. Women befriended and old ladies called perfect. Fifty minutes later, when the flight ran out of food, Liv was offered an apple by the apologetic staff. When the plane landed, Liv learnt that Duncan had enjoyed an egg and bacon roll, a blueberry muffin and an orange juice. For the entire flight, Duncan hadn't thought to check on her, or swap seats, or nurse a baby. It was as if he was travelling alone, which, to be fair, he usually did. He'd felt terribly bad afterwards when he heard about the apple. A corkscrew of panic twisted in Liv's chest. Though autumn had begun weeks ago, it was expected to reach an unseasonably warm 32 degrees today. When they'd left home, it had been 26. For their short, tense trip, Duncan had set the air conditioning on high, but the air in the car was no longer cool. Liv clambered back into the passenger seat for a better view of the oval. Two sets of boys in football jerseys were deep in a game. Liv thought she recognised one of the pink-cheeked midfielders, someone's giraffe-like big brother. She waved, but no one was giving her or the car park any thought. She reassessed the multi-level buildings, the curving driveway. Past the ovals, the buildings appeared to be empty. Between the buildings was a glimpse of the bay. Usually the water calmed her. Simply looking at a poster of the sea made her feel better. But looking at the water this morning was not helping. Duncan had only been out of sight for a minute or two, but it seemed like twenty. Already the car was getting stuffy. Liv elbowed the horn. Twelve hours earlier, the Winston family's current woes had begun with a phone call. 
It was 10.40 on a Friday and Liv was driving home from Oscar's disappointing a representative basketball game in Bendigo. The standard of these games could be quite high as each club chose their best players for the teams, but tonight's game was a shambles. After giving Oscar a light roasting, Duncan had fallen asleep. Oscar had sunk himself to sleep as well by the time the phone rang. Liv assumed it would be Jay, the team's star point guard, homesick with a sore throat, but the number was unfamiliar. She pressed the button on the steering wheel and a woman's voice had burst into the dark cabin. Is this Jay Winsome's mother? Yes. The silence gaped like a ravine. Is he okay? Liv eyed Oscar snoring open-mouthed in the back seat. That's a matter of opinion. The woman's tone, while nasty, didn't suggest tragedy. Who is this? Chilly Saffin, Bella's mother. Liv tried to recall either the woman or the girl. Had Bella started in the twins' year at Carmichael in year three, five years ago? The Jilly that Liv could remember was fine-boned, with ironed yellow hair. What's this about? Liv turned down the volume. Tonight, Jay and that Blake Havelock posted the things they've written. The woman's voice was breaking up, but Liv caught her drift. Bella uh, uh, and Jay's girlfriend, Grace, humiliated, and some girls are only 12. Jilly, Jay won't have done any of that, said Liv. He's sick. The younger of her twin sons, her secret favourite, was also a decent, sensitive child who didn't have a girlfriend. Blake told his mother, they did it together all right, I just got off the phone with her. Liv pictured her son's best friend, narrow, stooped and wan. Oh, Blake, a complicated kid, he wouldn't have been her choice for the job. Liv first met Blake Havelock when he was seven years old, and even then he was trying. It was day one of year two, and slyly he'd been kicking balls over fences and upending rubbish bins. His chatty mother Stella had quaffed coffee while laughing wildly at Liv's jokes, hard not to like, despite her crafty son, who, unfortunately, Jay had loved on sight. Mommy's so fun. Liv could remember the Saffins better then. Julia Saffin was a fragile woman with a retired, compliant husband and an odd children. Bella, frumpy, kind, reserved, age 14, and a son sporty, social, popular, aged 16, who'd been sent to the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. Liv tried to follow the threads of the conversation. But Stella's in the Northern Territory. That was her excuse. What's yours? Liv swallowed. Was it for her to have an excuse or simply for her son? And what of her napping husband? Jilly, I'll look into it. She'd ended the call and planted her foot. Duncan, she whispered. Wake up. Where's your phone? Not one person was responding to the horn. Liv watched two boys running for a loose ball from opposite directions, and she winced. Nearer the car, on the driveway, three girls in Carmichael sports uniforms sashayed past. Four boys, propped on a fence, took their eyes off the game to yell and gesture at them. The boys were from the opposing school, some inner-city grammar. One girl tubbed at the hem of her netball skirt, the other grew pinker with each step. Laughing, the boys shoved each other until the smallest of them fell. Like a demented child, Liv continued tooting. Last night, as Paddocks dashed by, it had seemed to Liv that she was constantly rushing, constantly time poor, constantly exhausted. That morning, she'd risen at six to ready the boys for school and rehearse herself for work. At eight, once the boys had left, she'd driven across town to interview the former workmates of an injured truck mechanic. Around two, hot and hungry, she'd interviewed their defensive motorhead boss. By six, she was rushing home again to pick up Cody from Harry's house and make veggie burgers. She looked to Duncan, who was hunched over his phone. 
This Grace girl, he said, crikey, she really 14? In the rearview mirror, Liv glimpsed Oscar still asleep. You could just make out his wispy moustache. Put it away, she whispered. She rushed, she supposed, to fit everything in and keep everyone happy, as if her husband's and her children's happiness were her KPIs. Of course, Duncan's happiness was ultimately his responsibility, but Liv did what she could, and much of the boy's happiness fell to her. And her boys were happy, or so she'd thought. Their happiness was measured in activities and grades and goals, friends and haircuts and shoes. Each day she attended to their breakfasts and school lunches, their clean washing and stainless steel water bottles, their home bakes, after-school snacks and healthy, colourful dinners. Each week, she scheduled the boys' basketball training for two teams, their local domestic team and representative team, their football games, clarinet, trumpet practice, and mass tutor, swimming lessons and play dates for nine-year-old Cody. Until recently, she'd patched their six knees, cut their 30 toenails, and sponged their countless stains. She still chased a filthy Cody around the house or the backyard with a hose. Listening to his eternal, Illogical stories stemmed his bloody noses. She washed the boys' bed linen, admittedly not often enough, and hung their towels. Nightly, she scrolled through the twins' messages and monitored their screen time. She'd never seen anything alarming, not like this. To preserve her sanity and her marriage, she'd organised annual holidays, dinners with friends and date nights. Twenty-five years ago, she was a high-achieving student, and today, she was a high-achieving mother and wife, a super-doer, or so she'd thought. She'd been living, she realised, as if one day someone was going to grade her efforts and that A-plus would make everything worthwhile. Arriving home around 11.30pm, Liv had been relieved to see the house lit up and Jay sprawled on the couch. He was watching the Milwaukee Bucks play the Toronto Raptors, with one hand on his phone, the other in Duncan's chocolate stash. Stirred by the ceiling fan, shreds of silver foil danced about the orange carpet. The carpet, like the flat-roofed house, was only a few years older than Liv was. Built in the early 1970s, their house was large and airy and in need of updating. And she loved it, its unpretentiousness, its livability. Liv surveyed the rest of her tired home as if on the lookout for a sniper. You can do this, she told herself. Hi, Mum, did we win? Jay was smiling his usual smile, which involved most of his face. His large white teeth were chocolatey. He seemed better. She shook her head. Did Oscar score? Nope. She studied Jay for signs of knowing. His eyes, like hers, were oversized, dappled hazel and rarely deceitful. He swept his hair across his forehead. She took in the sprinkling of freckles across his nose. His throat, where his glands were down. Yes, he looked better. He also looked like the sort of boy she would have fancied at high school and therefore avoided. Fortunately, he and Oscar seemed unaware of their looks. Duncan entered then, carrying Oscar's basketball backpack. Confusion was scrawled on his face and something else. Horror? Or awe? Oscar's face too was complicated. Why is everyone looking at me funny? Liv abandoned the horn for her phone once more. Dialing, she reminded herself that this school was run by professionals who fell over themselves to help. The teachers at Carmichael, though not perfect, were the best money could buy, which meant highly engaged and terribly responsive. If you emailed them at 7.39pm on a Sunday with a homework or excursion query, you'd have a response by 7.43. The office staff were similarly efficient. Twenty seconds later, her call rang out. No doubt the office was having an especially busy Saturday.
Liv remembered then a study done in the 1960s after a woman was murdered outside her apartment in New York City. 30-odd people in the surrounding apartments had heard her screams, but no one came to help, apparently. Why? It turned out because everyone assumed someone else would, if it was necessary. The study found if you wanted to be helped or rescued, it was optimal for fewer than four people to be nearby. One was best. On and around the ovals, Liv could see more than 60 people. She was stuffed. She pressed the horn again, long, insistent bleats. Perspiration dotted her cheeks. Eventually, a lonely winger turned in the direction of the car. A breeze lifted his fringe from his eyes. When she tooted again, he took a step towards the car and she beamed. But then, in the midfield, a boot connected with the ball, sending it high and his way, and he was off. The TV was black and Jay was perched on the couch when Liv said, You wrote that Grace Charters loves cock? I did? Jay took Duncan's telephone and flicked through the images. He looked, at most, puzzled. His gaze lingered on the one of Grace, his apparent girlfriend. Then he flipped through the others while Liv talked. As he listened, his eyes flared, but not with real distress or mortification. Watching over Jay's shoulder, Oscar's eyes were wide yet wounded. This girlfriend caper seemed new to him too. What do you have to say? Duncan shot Liv a go-easy look as he switched off lights and the fan. For ten whole seconds they sat in vacuum-sealed silence as Jay seemed to process the night's developments. Then he returned the phone. They're not the best of Bella, he said softly. Liv frowned at the photographs of girls in various modes of dress, ranging from school uniforms to barely their bikinis. Thankfully, none was topless or explicit, but beneath each image, foul comments vied for attention like scrawls on a toilet door. Girls were given ratings of 3 out of 10, called skanky hoes and ugly bitches. Liv recognised many of the kids' handles. These were boys from school, her son's friends and acquaintances, the children of friends and acquaintances. Liv's stomach roiled. Jay drew down his heavy eyelids. Sometimes Liv thought her handsome sons resembled thoughtful lizards, but tonight this son's silence was baffling her. She'd been chatting with her boys for years about respect and equity, since the twins were 11 and Cody was six and not meant to be listening. She'd been determined to create young men who owned their emotions and articulated them, men who had friendships with men and women, men who didn't touch anyone else's body parts without clear permission. Long before Me Too, Liv and the twins had talked about sex and consent, condoms and pregnancy, nudes and dick pics, often reluctantly and squirming, but she'd done it. Liv had talked with the twins and Cody about the number of female characters in the board games they'd played and the movies they watched. They talked about how the women in music video videos wore far less than the men, who were often noticeably plain-looking, pudgy and covered up. Liv was trying to make her sons critical thinkers, responsible humans. But somehow, had her son become that boy? Jay? One of their reliable, sensible twins who'd been nothing but compliant his entire life? Jay returned to his phone. Jay! Bedtime, Duncan said, flicking off the final light switch. Wisely, Oscar made for the shower. When Jay looked up, Liv was disconcerted by the intensity of his gaze. It wasn't malicious or angry, but it was unfamiliar. 
like looking through a hole in the wall and finding an eye staring back at you. Chill, Mum. It's not a big deal. Liv rested her forehead against the car's warm window. After a few seconds, her obstetrician popped into her head. Almost 15 years ago, at the 36-week mark, he'd said, Are you ready for your life to be changed forever? He'd been trying to be cheery, she supposed, to normalise the impending birth of her first and second children, but he'd been an obtuse fellow, referring to himself in the third person. Elliot wants you to lie back and relax. This said while holding an instrument as long as his forearm. To his question, she smiled politely, thinking he was overstating matters. Back then, she and Duncan were both third-year solicitors working in neighbouring top-tier firms. They were paid similarly, had similar ambitions for partnership. But Elliot had been right. Since the birth of the twins, her life had changed completely. Had Duncan's? Well, yes, but not in the same way. And had she been ready? Looking back, she'd have to say, fat chance, Elliot. Another more recent doctor appeared in her head. Liv wondered what her subconscious was trying to tell her. Only yesterday, Dr. Helen, her GP, had asked, you still tired? Ha! Eight uninterrupted hours of sleep was a thing of the past for virtually everyone Liv knew. But Liv's problems, it turned out, were greater than lack of sleep. Dr. Helen had the results of Liv's recent blood tests cholesterol, iron, vitamin D, thyroid thingies, menopausal what's-its, you name it, it was out of whack. This is one of the few tests in Liv's life that she'd failed spectacularly. Your hair still falling out? Liv had run her fingers through her hair, producing rusty strands of evidence. You need to slow down, said Dr. Helen more kindly. Look after yourself. Rest. Are you serious? I work four days a week. I've got three school-aged sons and a husband. Liv had laughed. But Dr. Helen hadn't seen the funny side. You're at risk of burning out. Focus on what's important and forget about the rest. Soon, Liv supposed she'd have to smash a window. She was considering what in the car she could use when an elderly man in a sun hat came through a side gate. He was tottering with a forward lean across the car park. Liv bashed on the window and honked the horn until he registered her. He studied her as if she were a mystifying exhibit in a glass cage. Breathless, she yelled through the window, My husband's in reception, about to meet the principal with our son Jay. My husband has lots of springy hair on top and, and long teeth. She pointed at her own teeth for emphasis. The old man seemed suitably alarmed and set off unsteadily at speed. Liv could have cried. Within seconds of the man doddering inside, Duncan reappeared at a run, his curls bouncing his arm outstretched towards the car, and then she was out, wiping perspiration, gulping air. Are you okay? said Duncan. Liv, I mean, what happened? She was having trouble looking at him. I thought you were still on the phone. She inhaled deeply. He glanced at the boys playing football. Mr. Crisp is waiting, but are you okay? Why didn't it open? He examined the car's door as if to spot the problem. Liv breathed slowly until her, her eyes focused. The world beyond the car looked new, more distinct. The birdsong sounded louder, the sun brighter. Even her husband, looking worriedly from the car to her, seemed made new. Duncan's best feature was his loose curls, the colour of chocolate mud cake, worn long on top but short on the sides. 
His eyes, a lighter tan, were small and deep-set, yet warm. His teeth were on the long side, but his smile was quick. At university, in the law faculty, they'd found each other and stayed put, figuring they'd done as well as they might ever. They were 19. Liv, say something. I'm sorry about the car. He scowled at the Audi as if it had betrayed him. She inhaled. That must never, ever happen again. Yes, got it. He smiled. It was hard to dislike Duncan unless you were irked by amiable neutrality. Her husband had been invited to more 21st and weddings, 30th and 40th than anyone she knew. A pleasant human stocking filler. Are you okay? He leant towards her. No, Liv made herself smile, but I will be. Jay appeared on the grass. Her beautiful, oblivious boy waved. The twins had thick blonde hair on their long limbs, but nutmeg-coloured hair on their heads. A tall boy, Jay looked as if he'd grown taller since they'd arrived. She wiped her eyes. The keys, she said. Please give me the keys. Duncan passed them and Liv clasped them tight. As she set off, she wobbled and Duncan took her arm. His grip was strong and his step steady. Mustering some dignity, Liv entered the chilly administration building and smiled at the receptionist. I'm terribly sorry for the delay, she said. Oof, that little apology at the end after what Liv has just been through, that really got me. So, so clever. Tipping is published by Penguin Australia and is out now in all good bookstores, libraries and online. Now, if you're itching to write your own supremely clever novel, there's no better place to start than with the course Creative Writing Stage 1 at the Australian Writer Centre. That's what Sarah Bailey did before going on to publish her debut novel, The Dark Lake, and two more crime thrillers. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Let's hear from Sarah Bailey. My name's Sarah Bailey. Um, I've got a debut novel through Alan and Umlin out at the moment. It's called The Dark Lake, it's a crime thriller. I was working in advertising at the time and I was working at a great company and had a really sort of good career, but I just had this burning desire to write all the time. I'd heard really good things about the Australian Writer Centre's course. Um, the reviews were always really positive and people always sort of providing really good feedback on social media. So um, I just thought that was a really good place for me to start. I found Nicole Hayes, the tutor that I had in the course that I did through the Australian Writer Centre, really inspiring. Um, really down-to-earth um, teaching style, but just a really great way of um, pulling together some of the writing skills that she's picked up over the years. She had such a passion for narrative and structure um, and being a published author, she had some, some really practical um, advice and knowledge to share as well. The process for me was just setting my own deadlines, which was something that was covered off in the Australian Writer Centre's course as well. Went, this is how many words I'd like to have by these different points along the year and then I um, just worked towards getting the words down and then I sort of um, approached agents and then the agents helped me approach publishers. In the end when Alan and Unwin decided to publish the novel and um, that was all confirmed, it was, it was amazing. It was just such an amazing um, experience to go through and I felt really fortunate um, but also really proud because it had obviously been you know, a really hard, um, hard sort of journey to get there. 
through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that writing was something that was really, really important to me. And then, of course, you know, through meeting the people and the tutor that I had, I also picked up a lot of really invaluable skills as well. I think it really just set me off on the right path. Um, and then since then, obviously, so much has happened in my world in terms of writing that I really do see it as the first step um, that, I, that I took along that path. It's amazing. I've, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position where that's, that's my current life. So I think that was, a, that was hugely important um, in terms of getting, getting started. Definitely anyone who's interested in writing and sort of taking a, a, a more serious step toward that as a career or even just a, a more specific hobby. I think the Australian Writer Centre's courses are really worthwhile. I think it's just, it's always nice to be um, in an environment where people are passionate about what you're passionate about. Um, and I think that the, um, the skills and the information that you get from, from courses like that just, just help you sort of really focus. For me, the creative writing course was, was a great starting point. I think it just made me um, rediscover my love for writing at a basic level all over again. Um, so I think that I've definitely spoken to other friends and have suggested that they give it a shot. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creativewriting. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre. Do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at writerscentreau, and of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.